You're listening to the Arts Emergency Podcast. Welcome to episode 23 of the Arts Emergency Podcast, the podcast that gives young emerging artists a platform and a source of inspiration each and every month. In our last episode, before we press the pause button on podcasting for a while, we're talking about love, the power of positivity and putting yourself out there. I'll be talking to actress, singer, dancer and all-round incredible person Dominique Tipper, whose recent roles in hit US show The Expanse and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them have really launched her acting career in both the UK and the US. We'll also hear from Manchester-based arts emergency student Emma Conroy, who will be sharing her love for music with us in this month's student soundtrack. And Raid Khan will be talking about his non-profit charity Road to Freedom, which provides direct aid to refugees fleeing war-torn countries. We've also got poetry from the brilliant Cecilia Knapp later on, and she's not the only spoken word artist gracing us with her words in this episode. We're kicking off the show this month with someone whose fearlessness is a constant source of inspiration. She's spent years working in collaboration with The Roundhouse, has been published by organisations such as Louis Vuitton, Oxford University, Radio 4. She's developed poetry all over the world, from South Africa to Chicago, and has been awarded over £250,000 by Arts Council England to develop young talent in the East Midlands and beyond through her project, Mouthy Poets. And if you've ever filled out an Arts Council application, you'll understand what a huge achievement that is. She's a huge fan of grime, soca and dancehall, and it's something that definitely filters through her sound as a spoken word artist. There really is no boundaries to this woman's creativity. So it is my absolute pleasure to announce her as the first of our two poet-in-residences this month with her poem, Fireflies, the incredible Debris Stevenson. She will not have even realised she was running away from home. She'll lean her net of necklaces into his. The tangle will begin to loosen. Dance, even. She will stretch her fingers. She will mistake the rain for fireflies. Turn off her iPhone. Mistake fireflies for rain. She will find herself in the eye of a firework. He'll look at her. Point at a tree. They'll walk towards its branches and leaves. A wave curving for the shore. She will curl onto the bench below. Shivers will come like blood to the surface of a wound. She can't feel yet. She will realise his arm before she realises she is cold. He will unhook an 80-litre backpack, his thumb looping baby hairs till he finds the drawstring to her spine and starts pulling. She will shoot out her shoulders as the corset drops one panel at a time, lets limbs pop, fizzle, watches her glow trail scream, fluorescence from her fingers flying like fire or rain. When I first saw Brit Flick Fast Girls in 2012, the timing of its release couldn't have felt more perfect. The country was awash with sporting fever in the wake of the Olympic Games and it was so exciting to see a sports film led by a female cast. 
One of those inspiring female characters was played by former singer and dancer Dominique Tipper, whose career has gone from strength to strength since landing an equally badass role in US sci-fi drama The Expanse. When she dropped into the studio for a chat, I wanted to know where it all started for her. Was there a moment in her childhood that made her realise that one way or another she just had to perform? I'm not sure if there was exactly a defining moment. I've always, like even when I look at baby pictures of myself... In literally every one, I'm in the middle of a room doing a cartwheel or dancing or it's very rare that I'm sitting down. So I think I've always been a bit of a performer. But when I was around, um, I'm going to say about nine, I started writing poetry, which I then shifted into writing songs. And I was like, I'm going to be a pop star. And so I was writing songs properly since I was 11. And I pursued a pop music career for quite a while. I was in a girl group from the age of 14 to 18, amongst doing loads of other things. And then when I started dancing, I was doing my music on the side as well because I've released an EP and had a couple of music videos. So that was what I thought I was going to end up being. And like Mm. if I was doing an acting, it was like on the side, like Rihanna or Beyonce or someone did. But then my professional dance career really eclipsed everything. And then I kind of got 12 years later into that. I was like, oh, I actually discovered acting and then wanted to do that. And then now I'm doing that. And I think that's going to be my thing. So Yeah, it might be slightly more sustainable than a dance career. Because <laughs> I knew that you had been a dancer previously. I didn't know about the singing, though. So yeah. you are a, a real triple threat then. <laughs> yes, I guess so. Um, with those three talents, did you ever think, I want to do musical theatre, I want to be on stage? No, I've never... It's funny because musicals are, like, my most favourite thing, but the film versions. I've never, ever wanted to myself be in a in a musical in the West End or anything. It's never even crossed my mind. I really want to do a film yeah. for sure because I guess I grew up watching like Annie and West Side Story West Side Story mm. is my favorite film yeah. and all those kind of films and those paired with Michael Jackson I think is what really fueled me and pushed me into performing we couldn't really afford to go to theater so I, I was never really exposed to that yeah. but I always saw it in a film form which is what I now tend to prefer to be honest so I would definitely do a musical, but not not on the stage. I'd, yeah. I'd do it for a film, for sure. So do you just not feel like the stage is a space for you? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of quite... Um, I guess you could say I've never really thought of the boxes that my um, socioeconomic status puts me in or my race or whatever. I'm very much like, if I want to do something, I'll find a way to do it. But the reality is, even now as an actress, because I didn't train at a school or anything, it is really difficult for me to get into audition for for theatre. Like, people won't even see me. So it's not so much that I don't see myself there, because now I can afford it, I go to the theatre pretty much all the time, because Mm. it's educational for me as an actress. I would love to do it, but I just think there's still that stigma wrapped around it, where if you haven't trained at a school or something you know you're not really uh considered the right type of actress for it yeah or actor and socioeconomic situations you know certainly how you grew up and everything really does make a difference to whether you can afford to go to drama school yeah it's not cheap no it's not and then you know people start asking questions when for example the all-white cast of of half a sixpence starts to get noticed yeah and then it's like oh well why is that well it's obvious why yeah you have to go back to the beginning really because I actually auditioned for Sylvia Young when I was I think 10 
And I got in, but I didn't get a scholarship, so I couldn't go. So that was... That's that terrible. was my story with schools and I was just like, oh, okay then. Um, and it must have been quite heartbreaking at the time and quite discouraging. Oh my God, I was devastated. Yeah. But my mum was really like, it's all right, come on, pick yourself back up. Yeah. You know, that good like East End, <laughs> kind of dust yourself off and get on with it. So yeah. I, Whereas not everybody is, has, has even got parents no. who, are, who are in the position no. to be able to say that. No. You know, and, and so many people might even have parents who are like, I've struggled my entire life financially and I don't want you to have to struggle. Yeah. So go and get a law degree yeah. and do something safe like that Which now. happens to a lot of us. Yeah. It's funny because I've, I've always felt I've been really blessed in that way. My family always been so supportive of what I've done and quite in particular my mum. She's never made me feel like I need to do something else or pursuing an art is not a proper job or any of that. I was always free to do whatever I wanted and... I, I was always looking for something to do, some outlet. School never provided it for me. The arts programme at my primary school and my secondary school just didn't didn't nurture any of us in that way, I feel, Mm. unless you played a classical instrument, which I wanted to be a pop star. (laughs) I remember sitting in the careers office and then going, "Okay, we're going to send you to a shoe shop for work experience I was like wow. how is that going to help me be a pop star that's having seriously low expectations of your <laughs> of students course. as well not that there's anything wrong with working in a shoe no, shop no because sure. I did for years but yeah. for what I wanted to do for my career it yeah. wasn't anything to do with retail so yeah. Trevor Nelson worked in a shoe shop for many, many years. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. His little party trick is guessing your shoe size just by looking <laughs> at it. I love that. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, nothing wrong with working in a shoe shop, but there are so many other arenas that young people well, can Well, yeah, as I in. say, for work experience, that's not what I wanted to do. I knew I could go and get a job in a shoe shop for money. Yeah. It wasn't going to be my career. And mm. so for me, for a career advisor, yeah. you ask me what I want to do, don't put me in a... Yes. Shoe shop because I did. I worked in a. I worked in office and Offspring for years while I was working on establishing myself as a dancer. I couldn't. I wasn't making the money yet. I wasn't working weekly. And... Do you ever get to the point where you're making enough money in commercial dance? Um, because it seems like there's definitely been a trend, certainly within the last kind of five to maybe even ten years, of the best-looking dancers getting the jobs, yeah. who you can pay slightly less rather than the most talented. Yeah. dancers who are the most experienced who obviously need a little bit more pay and so people are cutting costs and cutting corners and thinking yeah. well this person's going to look great in the shot so we'll do a bit of fancy camera work and it doesn't matter if they're not that highly yeah, skilled it, it varies like you have to be one of the best to earn enough to support yourself mm. I don't think there's any doubt about that and I don't mean this is in any kind of arrogant way but I worked hard enough to make sure I was one of the best dancers I knew I looked Um, I fitted a certain Mm. mould but I was more interested in being a very good dancer and I again I wasn't trained I wasn't trained classically Mm. so I came from a hip-hop street dance background because when I was 16 a friend of mine Jermaine Riley who was in a boy group fundamental for quite a number of years he took me to a dance class in South London at Huskies I danced I'd done cheerleading and stuff but that Mm. was the first class like proper dance class I'd done and I just I was 16 wow okay Um, and I fell in love with it and I was like I want to do this so I went to as many classes I could got photos done with someone and was like crashing auditions and just going that kind of militant way about it and eventually the more I worked the more people got to know me I established myself as one of the best and I danced for 12 years wow from the the beginning to when I transitioned into acting I managed to make a career out of it 
but it wasn't easy. It's a bit different in America. I feel like the art is um, held a little bit more highly. Yeah. Um, and you get paid better. Mm-hmm. And there's a more of a respect there. It still could be improved, but there is more of a respect there. There's unions in place yeah. that support what we call commercial dancers who dance for artists on mm. TV shows, tours. Over here, we're so far behind America in yeah. that respect. A lot needs to be done to bring us up to date. So do you think the best thing that a young aspiring dancer in the UK could do is maybe move out to the States and try their luck out there? I mean, that would have been my next step. I I established myself here first because I didn't have the money to get a visa and move because that costs a lot of money. It's like £3,000 at Mm. least. So I established myself here first. And I think if you establish yourself at home, then you've probably got the tools to go and do it in America because it's only bigger and more difficult. And, you know, I've got friends like one of my really good friends, Rebecca. She went out there and it took her a couple of years, but she's just come off a Rihanna's World Tour and she's been dancing for Beyonce. And another friend of mine, Tajana was on Beyonce's world tour so Mm. it's possible and they're two girls from from working class backgrounds yeah it's possible but it's a lot of hard work dancing is you need to really love it basically and you have to know that your body is going to stand yeah the test look after yourself yeah Yeah. I went to performing arts school in America yeah and was a dancer and did ballet and did contemporary and at the age of 17 my knees went yeah and then it was like oh my god what am I gonna do now yeah and kind of came to the realisation that I didn't want to do something that was so reliant on my body being yeah. tip-top all harsh. the time. And then by the time you're 30, it's kind of like, okay, we well, have to start thinking about what's next. And that's not to discourage anyone out there who does want no. to be a dancer because you can have a great... Yeah. You know, you can end up dancing for Beyonce. Yeah, there's lots of but us there's that lots testament to, consider, to it. There? Even here you can do well. I've got quite a few of my best friends I met while I was dancing. I've known them eight, ten years. Mm. Some of them are dancing for Kylie and Robbie Williams. And it's possible, like, yeah. to carve out a good career. But it's... Um, it's not just about how you look and dance. You're a business yourself. You have to conduct yourself in a certain way. Yeah. You have to be quite savvy in about how you represent yourself on a day-to-day basis as well. Yeah. It's not just the work. There's a lot to it, you know, like in any job, really. Mm. But I think more specifically in dancing and, and even in all the arts, really. And I guess there's good jobs and there's there's bad jobs. Oh, yeah. You know? There's like fashion shows in shopping centres. Yeah. They're the ones that sustain you in between the Brits yeah. and the EMAs. And so mm. you've got to take it all. It's the same with acting as well. And would you say that going back to what we were saying about America and kind of establishing yourself here and then maybe trying a look in the States, would you say that the same kind of applies to acting? Because we've seen a real trend, particularly in the last seven or eight years of particularly ethnic minority actors and actresses moving out to the States before they're even really that established here and then kind of blowing up over there and then coming back and being like, I'm a star now. And then, you know, kind of British production companies and that wanting to work with them. So what has been your experience of kind of starting a little bit here and then moving out to the States? Yeah. When I first, my first film I done was Fast Girls, Mm -hmm. which is a British indie film. Brilliant, brilliant film. Oh, and obviously it. Yeah. it came out in 2012 as yeah. well when the Olympics yeah. was happening and sport was cool again. And yeah, and it was a cast of women. Yeah. And, and I didn't even know how special and unique and rare that film was because mm. I was such a newbie to acting and I wasn't even sure if I wanted to do it at that point. Wow. Um, but I was friends with Damien Jones, the producer, and I loved the script and I was like, please let me uh, read for a part in this. And yeah. he was like, go ahead. So I got the very small part of Sarah 
But I got to be around those girls, Lenora Critchlow, Lily James, Lashana Lynch and Lorraine Burroughs. Mm. And they were infectious with their energy and talent. Yeah. And when I saw them working, I was just like, have to do this. But then what I found happened after that was that a lot of my work ended up being and coming from America just because of the simple fact that there are more roles for people of colour and women, mm. women in good roles, you know, yeah. over there. And and I guess Fast Girls was a bit of a, an anomaly. Yeah, it almost felt like a, a rare, like, kind yeah. of fluky thing when I, when I look at it. a sports film as well. Absolutely. I mean, there are very, very few sports films worldwide that yeah. have women as the central yeah. characters. And I guess you had to do, did you do, like, all of the running oh and everything? I know yeah. Lenora Critchlow um, injured her ankle or something, yeah, didn't she? Yeah, bless her. So... She injured both of them. Oh, my gosh. She was, she had a nightmare because it's, so hardcore it's hardcore training you know and we were we were training next to people that were preparing for the actual olympics and doing their training regimes and eating the way they do and it was 10 weeks of training we done in total and i felt like an athlete by the time we come to filming i wanted to just headbutt the wall because it was so hard (laughs) but like at the same time I feel blessed that I got to, yeah, that's the beauty of acting. You get to kind of like go into other people's lives for little periods of time. Mm. And that was one of those things we got to do. But it was really hard training. But yes, that film was almost like such a rarity. I can't, I don't think I've done anything with an all-female cast since. Mm. So my job after that was Vampire Academy. That was an American film, but they shot in London. So I had a small role in that. And then I got a role in Death in Paradise. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, Lashana was on that as well. We'd oh, done wow. like a volleyball episode. So that is one of the few programs over here that, you know, has black and mixed race people in it. Yeah. What followed on from that was me going to LA. I went for pilot season. I got my first lead role in a film, wow. um, which was Mind Gamers, which is coming out in March. It's taken a couple of years to come out. And then I got The Expanse, which has been my biggest job Mm -hmm. to date. Now, that's filmed in Toronto, isn't it? Yeah. But it's a US show. Yes. So... What's your what's been your experience of working oh on that and being so far away from home as well? Yeah, when when I first got it, I was so majorly overwhelmed. I couldn't like because obviously it's everything I'd been working towards, but the you know this is like a hundred fifty million dollar production. Mm. It's based on a series of books. The character is beloved. Yeah, it's like there was so much pressure. I was the only British person there, so I was very much like very aware that a chance had been taken on me and all mm. those kind of things. Then as being a girl from who grew up on a council estate in East London, I get on a business class flight to go to... to it was just all like, <laughs> OK, this is happening. Wow. Like, I couldn't believe it. But it has been the most shaping and informative and eye-opening experience for me to date. And, yeah. you know, we I shot our second season last year, so I've done two mm. seasons of it. So technically I've shot it. We do six months at a time. I've done a year of it. I'm so lucky because the cast and the crew and the writers and everyone is quite fantastic. And I keep getting told that it's not like that. <laughs> but I'm like, well, it is for me. For now. Um, for now. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's been amazing and it continues to be because the second season is on TV in the US yeah. at the moment. So there's been a lot of press and stuff I've been doing and staying up to the middle of the night and live tweeting with people when the episodes are on. But it's just one of the few shows sci-fi is one of the the first uh they're leading the way with having four lead women who are all non-white um, and i'm one of them yeah 
and they're all women in positions of power. Yeah, because you're like a kick-ass engineer, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, just head engineer. <laughs> like, so even that, it's just like, I'm glad that I'm in a role and on a show that also fights for what I believe in. Yeah, you know, what sub- falls subverts in those stereotypes. Yeah. So it's all set in space. Yes. So I'm assuming there's lots of green screen, lots of special effects. What is it like working with all of that? Yeah, there is a lot of VFX, but we also have a lot of physical sets. They've built a lot of the spaceships that we work on are fully functioning, working parts with like different levels. Mm. So in actual fact, like um, the Rosanante, which we spend most of our time on, it's all there. So there's not too much of the imagination involved in that. It's more when we, we're outside the ship, when we're in space or, I don't know, doing doing things that tend to be set outside is when the green screen kicks yeah. in. When we're doing stuff on wires, zero-G stuff, Ooh. that tends to sometimes be set against a green screen. So that requires a bit more of the imagination. But it's amazing. Like The, the whole experience is just so awesome. It's so mind-blowing. And the writing is so good. So mm. we have such good material to work with. We have such good source material to work with because mm. the books are incredible. Well, it's such an unusual storyline to begin yeah. with, isn't it? Because it's essentially <laughs> a, a cop drama, kind of mystery yeah. thriller, but set in space. Yeah, know? with like this whole political aspect yeah. with uh, Avasarala on Earth. And then you have us who are like these truckers in space. Yeah, there's essential, essentially kind of three different yeah. stories yeah. that are explored yeah. within it that all sort of connect. Yeah, And it's just... It's crazy to even... I mean, we've all seen cop dramas, haven't we? Yeah. We've all seen kind of the stereotypical detective who has, like, problems with women and maybe a bit of a drinking problem and stuff like that. And we've seen that play out on Earth so many times. So it's quite... Yeah, it's so different to see it in space. Yeah, and Thomas Jane does a very excellent job of refreshing that, I think. His portrayal of Miller is just phenomenal so yeah it's it's very different and then they all get roped into that solar system wide conspiracy it's just yeah it's a huge sprawling story and our team does such a good job of kind of putting it in these bite-sized chunks every week i think Mm. it's amazing so at the moment your life is acting yes do you ever miss dance or you know singing i don't miss singing because in a weird way i think i was too passionate about it and too close to it. Mm. I couldn't step back ever and kind of be not emotional about it and and the projects I was doing and if people wouldn't be on board with things or call me back or studio, all that. I mean, all I'd done was watch MTV, music videos. I was always doing something. Mm. So I think as I've got older, looking back on it, I don't miss it because I actually prefer something that I came to a bit later and I can be a bit more rational with it and with the art and it just doesn't feel as hectic to me if that makes sense it's nice to be able to step back and look at things with a with a cooler yeah and it it? all it's all a bit slower it all takes a bit longer to do and it's Mm. all um the prep takes longer and I, i don't know how to explain it so i don't miss music in that way dancing i miss sometimes because i miss the rush of live tv like Mm. you know i danced on x factor for five years and wow i miss that thing of 
rushing, having all hair, makeup, shoes that don't fit and outfits that, oh, I might slip over on stage and then getting on stage and it's like, Nicole Scherzinger. And then it's like, oh, okay, we're live to like millions and millions. And then boom, performance. I miss that. Mm. Um, And I miss the community because dancers, we're all thrown in rooms together and buses and trains and planes and bars and birthdays. And I kind of miss that. Because yeah. all my friends are there. When I, when I first got into acting, I really struggled with like the kind of separateness of actors yeah. and how everyone's got their own apartments and lives, and mm. not everyone hangs out after shooting. And mm. I was just like, "What do you What do you mean?" Like, yeah, it um, seems very transient because you're kind of all thrown into this environment to do a film or to do a TV show. And then when you're done, you're done and you move on and you might kind of stay in loose contact, but you may never see each other again or work with each other again. And that's kind of, whereas the dance world, it seems like everyone knows everyone. Well, yeah. And like, if you're one of the best, it's highly likely you'll keep dancing with the other bests. Mm. So I ended up being with the same people all the time, the same core group that always got booked on stuff, always the go-tos if the Americans came over and, you know, even choreographer wise, I've got loads of friends that choreographers that still work in. But obviously they were, they're some of the best. So they was always, you know, we was always all working together. I got to see Mm. my best friends every day, spending weeks crafting these shows that we then got to go on stage and do together. And acting's quite um, solo and lonely in that way, where it's very much a personal, you know, you prep on your own. It's all insular. It's in your head. It's very self-reflective. And there's aspects of that that I love, but... If anyone asks me what I miss, it's it's yeah. that kind of side Family. of dancing. But then, you know, the pay's better with acting, or it has been for me mm. at least. So in that respect, I don't miss that about dancing because I do have a little bit more breathing space. And, and I keep saying as a working class girl, it's nice to earn yeah. money, good money, and not worry about where food's coming from every minute or rent money or whatever it is and it's great that you've been lucky enough to work on projects that you obviously really believe in and have been passionate about so lucky and that's you know sometimes the compromise that some working class actors have to make is that they have to do a job that they don't really want to do yeah of course because they need the money yeah so it's it must be amazing to kind of be in that space where you haven't had to do that yeah no I've, i've done the odd few but all in all i've been pretty solid in in what I've done and what I've not done been very happy about that like it's crazy and you've done so much already I mean you were in Fantastic Beasts (laughs) yes I was yeah had a little role in that that's again being thrown into a world that's so different to the world that you're used to I mean as well like obviously the expanse has massive sets Mm. but obviously the kind of scope of that kind of film with that kind of budget walking into 1920s new york on the warner brothers lot you know there's department stores and subways and that was just mind-blowing and what was lovely i I kind of like follow carmen ajogo around Mm. her character around a lot in the film so i was always standing next to her and she's incredible and brilliant and wonderful and as another mixed race actress you know learning off of her and what she's done and her journey and just watching her on set being around Eddie Redmayne and I would have loved to have a bigger role but at the same time it was almost like fast girls in a way where I kind of got to on a bigger scale got to watch those kind of people work. It's nice seeing um, mixed race actresses in those roles yeah. and being kind of close to those roles, you know, seeing a mixed race actress um, play an Olympic athlete or or play, yeah. you know, a wizard and, you know, getting to play those roles that maybe aren't anything to do with their race. I know exactly. when I was younger, 
I kind of looked at the roles that seemed to be available for mixed race actors. Yeah. And it was very, very limited. Yeah. You know, very limited. And even now it tends to be a black role that you're mm. going up for. But it's, you know, if you're mixed race, it's... Yeah, it's okay. So it's rare. That's what I love about Naomi, the character I play, is she is actually mixed race and she's yeah. mixed race in the books. So it's nice to be playing a mixed race character. And, yeah. You know, really those roles who were orig- originally written black should go to black exactly. actors, shouldn't they? But then in my head, I'm like, well, I'd, I'd rarely come across a solely mixed mm. race role. So, you know, it's kind of lucky in a way that it's not even though I don't think it's the fairest thing that's that's happening but it's also like um, you know there aren't that many solely mixed race roles so in that respect it is kind of like a bit of a catch so you've you've done space you've done the wizarding world you've done the real world with fast girls you've done a wide range of things with your dance career and pop singing and everything is there something out there that you haven't been anywhere near yet that you would love to try out? I don't know, actually. That's a good question, because I can think of things that I kind of do, like poetry, but I've always done that, so it's not really that removed. But... Do you think you could see yourself maybe publishing or maybe... I would like to. Yeah? Yeah. I've, maybe I've... doing a bit of spoken word, because the spoken word scene has really blown up in the last kind of... Well, a friend of mine, George McKay, who's an actor, he mm. has like a poetry night that he puts on when he's not working. And the proceeds of the night, everyone donates and it goes to a charity of his choice. But what everyone gets up and does is read poetry, their works, their original works. And I'd done that at the last one. It's the first time I've ever read my poetry aloud. Wow. And I was breaking it. But um, (laughs) at the same time, it was kind of really new and quite a fresh experience because... You know, when I'm acting, I'm saying someone else's words and it's from, even though the character is a bit me, it's still that someone else's kind of thing, I'm story I'm telling where this was from my heart, very much from the core of me. Mm. So maybe a bit more of that. And I love photography. I don't do it professionally, but I'm really into vintage cameras and I'm always taking photos and mm. I travel a lot. So I was thinking about starting like a photography and poetry blog. So I might nice. do that. I would read that blog. Yeah, I I might do it. I've been throwing it around in my head. So what is actually next for you? What's next for Dominique Tipper? Um, Who knows? I'm waiting to... I'm working on um, something I can't actually talk about, so I can't even say that. (laughs) But I'm working on something at the moment, which Mm -hmm. is really cool and quite different for me, which, you know, when I'm allowed to talk about it, I'll put it on my Twitter and stuff. Mm. But I'm filming that at the moment. And then... I'm kind of waiting to hear if we get a season three for... Mm. I'm auditioning still, but I'm a bit... Because I'm locked into a contract, I can't really do... Like, it's pilot season at the moment. I can't... Mm. There's only so much I can do. Season two is airing. We're waiting to hear if we're going to get a season three. Yeah. And then I guess kind of based on that, I'll either go back and shoot season three, probably Mm. in June or something. Or if not, get back on the audition bandwagon and um, hopefully find another job. See what happens. Yeah. That's quite exciting though, isn't it? Not yeah. knowing what comes next. Yeah. I mean, I have my moments of like weird anxiety where I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. And then I'm like, it's fine. I'll meditate and like <laughs> do some yoga. And then I'm, I'm like, okay, chill out. Would uh, you say that things like meditation and yoga have been things that have helped you through the more anxiety-filled absolutely. parts of this journey? Absolutely. Meditation, yoga and changing my diet. Because funnily enough, another thing about growing up working class is I feel like you don't really pay much attention to what you're eating or when you're eating it. It's just about eating. eating. Yeah. 
And um, as I've got older, I've, I've really started to look into nutrition and, mm. and things. And I came across a book called A Mind of Your Own by um, this wonderful woman called Kelly Brogan. And it's about essentially about depression and antidepressants and the case for them not really working is heavily researched. She she was a doctor for years and it's based on her own depression that she kind of fueled her into doing all this. Mm-hmm. Um, after reading the book and looking at all the research, she kind of suggests an optimum diet for your mental state to Amazing. keep it healthy. So changing the diet and then also keeping meditation and yoga in mind and and doing that and also watching what products you use in terms of what you put on your skin and Mm. what you use in your home so I've been in the process of kind of like changing all that because I think with acting it's very important we keep our mind and our own personal thing Mm. as happy and as healthy as possible so I found just from changing the diet that not that I was depressed but my moods have stabilized and even around the time of the month and stuff I'm a lot more balanced balance that is the word I'm looking for so diet meditation and yoga are definitely my go-to for and nature I'm quite outdoorsy I love climbing a mountain or something (laughs) gives you perspective doesn't it yeah (laughs) so I've I've got all those things I always go to if I Mm. feel a bit out there meditation is probably the quick kind of fix in a way yeah but I do do that daily I would advise anybody to try meditation and yoga and, yeah, healthy eating. All of those things have changed my life and made it so much better because it is about achieving that balance, isn't it? Absolutely. What other advice would you give to budding young performers who want to sing, dance, act, anything you've ever done? I guess I can only talk from my experience, but I would say never give up because we do have a lot more against us, especially if you're working class, than, say, someone who isn't. And so I was very persistent and smart about the way I went about getting into my arts because I didn't have the money Mm. to do it the traditional way. Um, And I think I'm testament to the fact that you don't need to train to do stuff and do it well. If you've got it in you and and you want to develop that, find a way to do it. You can do it on your own. But obviously there's charities like Arts Emergency that are trying to help. And um, if the first avenue you were pursuing and, and go towards doesn't work out it'll just lead you on to a next one um don't fall into any categories any labels any boxes that are made for you because that's another thing that's limiting and sometimes you're not the statistic sometimes you're the exception and most of the people I know are the exceptions if that makes sense I guess anybody who's in that kind of space where they're acting singing dancing for a living they are exceptional people anyway aren't they So that's what we are. So just know that about yourself and know that you can do it. One of my favourite parts of the podcast every month has been the student soundtrack. It's given us the chance to get an insight into the lives of so many students that we support here at Arts Emergency, both here in London and in our branch up in Manchester. This month, we have the wonderful Emma Conroy, one of our Manchester students who's sharing some lovely stories around the music that she has selected this month. 
Hi, my name's Emma. I'm 18 and I'm from Manchester. I'm currently studying English Lit, English Language and Philosophy at Ashton Sixth Form College and hopefully I'll go into something to do with writing um, and maybe even get a book published one day. This is my Arts Emergency soundtrack. The first song that I've chosen is It's Time by Imagine Dragons. Um, it's one of my favourite songs ever. Um, I love it, the lyrics and the music. And I think when it says I'm never changing who I am, it's just an important message for life really because you don't need to change who you are for other people. Who you are is enough. And if someone doesn't accept that, then you don't need them. And I also think when it says it's time to build from the bottom of the pit right to the top, it shows that you don't need to have everything to start with. It's about how you get to where you're going using what you have. And I just think that as long as you stick to your guns, you can achieve whatever you want. It's also a really good song just for playing really loud in headphones. I feel better whenever I've listened to it because it's the first gig I ever went to was Imagine Dragons and when they played that song, it was amazing. The next song I've chosen is Spring by Two Door Cinema Club. I listened to this album when it came out non-stop, I just had it on repeat all the time. There was this moment when we did our Duke of Edinburgh Bronze Award in high school and me and two of my friends were walking up this hill and the last day it had been a bit sort of gloomy and it had been raining and everyone was a bit down and then we were walking up this hill and the sun had started to come out and I just heard spring playing in my ear and as we got to the top we were stood on these three rocks and the chorus came on and it was sunny and it was just such an amazing moment and every time I hear that song now I think of standing on those rocks with two of my best friends. If I follow you tonight and leave tomorrow If it's all forgotten love, forgotten love If I follow you The final song I've chosen is The Skylar Sisters from Hamilton the Musical. I love musicals in general, but when I discovered Hamilton, I feel like my life changed. It's my favourite musical, my favourite characters in a musical. I just love it. Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote it, is he's an amazing guy anyway, but his lyrics blow my mind. Like, the internal rhymes and the way he manages to create characters from the past but make them modern is just incredible. And the fact that it's like mainly historically accurate, I just don't understand how he's done it at all. But this song in particular is my favourite because Angelica Schuyler, who's one of the characters, he manages to give her like a really strong feminist voice, even though this is set in 18th century America, when women were seen as not as good, he still manages to make her an icon for women. And she sings the line, 
We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. When I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'm compelling to include women in the sequel. And I just, every time I hear those words, I'm like, yes, women should be in the sequel because women are just as important as men. And even if in the past they've not been included, they should be. And I think it's amazing that he managed to get that in, that even in the past, women have been important, even if it's not in the history books, even if it's looked over, women were always important and will always be. So that's my Arts Emergency soundtrack. Thank you for listening. Bye. I've been reading Common Sense by Thomas Paine. So many say that I'm intense around insane. You want a revolution? I want a revelation. So listen to my declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And when I meet Thomas Jefferson, oh. I'm going to compel him to include women in the sequel. Work! So as you can imagine, I am massively excited to have not one, but two incredible poet in residences this month in the Arts Emergency podcast. The second of our spoken word artists is a writer, poet and performer who's taken her poetry all over the UK and also internationally. She's made commissioned work for the Tate and BBC iPlayer and has had her words played on Radio 1, 1 Extra, 5 Live and XFM. Her one-woman theatre piece, Finding Home, is an exploration of loss, identity and growing up. It's supported by the Arts Council and the Roundhouse and has enjoyed sell-out London runs. And it's touring throughout the country this year, so definitely grab your tickets while you can. With her gorgeous poem, First Time, our second poet-in-residence this month, Cecilia Knapp. I was a child, really, the first time I let a man push through the soft fabric of his tracksuit bottoms and moan himself onto my hip bone. He had a car, I remember, dented boots. He drove me away from home through roads I didn't recognise and leaned with confidence towards me. My nostrils filled with factory-made pine scent that hung from the rearview mirror. I pictured suited men in a laboratory sniffing samples and filling test tubes, recreating the smell of being lost. My face back then was more angles and pink lips, seal pup legs newly slick from Dad's razor. I kissed the stubble on his chin. I closed my eyes by way of encouraging myself to get on with it, thinking all the time of tomorrow, only tomorrow, only the cubicle in the toilets at the end of South Block, my vestibule, foundation stains on our shirt collars. My own fire had just arrived. Windows of vans were being wound down. I thought it was a compliment to be wanted like that. We never wanted to be children. Even sat cross-legged during reading time, looking at my legs, I would try to sit up straight like a lady, observe the way the school socks made dents on my calves, but not on Ruth's, the way her stomach wasn't soft underneath her vest, with the little faux satin bow diamante in the middle. This was when I was told it was good for a girl to have a thin, long neck, that I was lucky to have one. The first time I brought a stranger home with me, I asked his name during the cab ride. We split a piece of chewing gum in half. All we talked about was the tattoo on his chest, that unfamiliar crest that resisted my fingertips. 
He told me he'd drank whiskey and done it himself with Indian ink and a hot needle in County Derry at 16 before he lay his weight on top of me. Oh, let us love ourselves. Let us love our skin, our flesh, and let my girlfriends roll around on beds loving themselves, loving every inch of themselves and knowing their power, making unpleasant noises of pleasure. Let us be disgusting and devastating and beautiful and flawed. We've all spent much of the last year or so watching countless refugees go through the worst hell you can imagine on earth. People fleeing their homes from incredible violence and literal starvation, situations where they're living in fear constantly, not just for their lives, but also the lives of their small children who have almost become desensitised to the sounds of bombs and the smells of dead bodies. And that's no way for a child or anyone to have to grow up. It's hard to know what to do when you see these horrific scenes. And sometimes you may watch these things and feel so overwhelmed with love and compassion for your fellow human beings that you feel frustrated and angry as well because you can't do more to help them. Raid Khan felt a similar way, and that's what motivated him to set up the non-profit charity Road to Freedom, which provides direct aid to refugees fleeing war-torn countries who were residing in camps across Europe and the Middle East. Raid is the editor over at MTV's The Wrap-Up, and he also steers the ship at Pardon My Blog, which is part of the Vice Blogging Network. He's pulled together his contacts and his wealth of experience in the media to launch this incredible campaign. And he's here to talk a little bit more about this project in this month's Final Thought. The day Road to Freedom was born began like any other, but ended up being a day I'll probably never forget. I was at work, as we all are, scanning the news and stumbled across a photo of a child called Aylan Kurdi. Uh, many of you know he is a three-year-old Syrian boy who had washed up on the shore of Turkey, having drowned in the Asian Sea. I can only describe what I felt as what was going on that day when I saw that picture. Um, I just always thought that, wow, like I have amazing friends, a beautiful family and a blossoming career. But it made me see feel that it, none of that really matters unless you're living a life that is of use to others. And I don't think I was ever the same again that day. Something changed and I knew that I had to do something and I had to find a way to help these people. Since that day, we set up Road to Freedom and we've travelled to the infamous camps in Calais, the islands of Samos, um, Dunkirk, Serbia, Idomeni, Macedonia and Athens, distributing aid and helping out where it's most needed. Um, responsibilities include doing shopping runs for families, organising children's parties, handing out food, clothing or simply just arranging accommodation for those that stranded in the cold on the streets. Most recently, um, we organised a container full of clothing and food, which has not long arrived in Syria, where the aid has been distributed to the families most in need within the camps. If there's one thing I can bring to your attention today, it would be to highlight that these desperate and innocent people are just like me and you. There is absolutely no difference. We have so much more in common than you could imagine, whether it's a teenager asking me if I know who Tupac is, or a small girl asking me if I know if I've heard the Lady Gaga song. And it's so funny that we, although... We are tuned to think that they are some completely aliens. We actually have so much more in common. They're normal people and they've just been torn from their lives, their homes, their jobs and families and where they now face adverse um, conditions, lack of food and uncertain future. It really could happen to any one of us. The shared devastation and horror of the situation is one to witness with your own eyes and I do ask until you have actually seen them, maintain an open mind and not allow the media and the propaganda to make you feel afraid of people you have never met. There are fathers who never return home, mothers who lose their babies to bombs, small children that are petrified of noises in the sky and couples who lose their true love to travesty. 
Most importantly, above all of this, they are human beings with a right to live with the safe and prosperous lives that we all do. This is exactly why it's so important to keep giving back to those who most are in need. We're just all humans at the end of the day trying desperately to do our best and not to topple off this vast and unsteady mountain that we call life. And I truly, truly believe that it's only holding on tightly to one another and helping each other through trials and tribulations that we will be able to reach the summit of our hopes and make a change for humanity collectively. As a once a very, very beautiful lady did say, we all have way more in common than the things that do divide us. For more on Road to Freedom and information on how to donate, do check out the website roadtofreedom.org.uk. That's all for this month and the last you'll hear from the Arts Emergency Podcast for a while. If you've enjoyed what you've heard over the course of the last two years or if you have any questions or comments, do get in touch via Twitter at Carla M. Sweet or at Arts Emergency. This episode was produced by me, Carla Sweet, with contributions from Debris Stevenson, Dominique Tipper, Emma Conroy, Cecilia Knapp and Raid Khan.